0: Please stand, if you are able, for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, and please read with me the verses in bold. Have this this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, and every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning, happy uh, Daylight Savings Day. Uh, I'm hoping that there's a law somehow that prohibits us from changing time and messing up our sleep schedule. Uh, but I hope you got enough rest. I did not. It was a strange, strange uh, evening. I just, I I wake up at the same time every morning. And so, yeah, this kind of messed it up uh, real good. But anyways, glad to be here. Uh, Glad you're here. Glad uh, you're worshiping with us online, if that's what you're doing this morning. Uh, Thankful that we get to do this together. Uh, Would you just join me in a a word of prayer as we begin our time in the word? God, I just Lord, we come to you uh, knowing, Lord, that this time, uh, Lord, not just the time in the, uh, the preaching of the word, but the hearing of the word, and this time that we come uh, into the doors of this church and we exit the doors of the church, and Lord, this day from the, the beginning, from the rising of the sun to its setting in the evening, uh, Lord, uh, this day is yours. Uh, and we, we also know, Lord, that the whole week is yours. And, and so, God, we commit our life, we commit... Uh, Lord, our worship, Lord, to you. And we just pray that in everything that we do uh, is an act of worship and glorifying, Lord, to you. Uh, Be with us as we uh, spend time in the Word of God. God, we pray that as we read it, uh, that, God, your voice would be heard. Uh, Lord, that message that we need to hear uh, would be clear. Uh, And God, I pray that there'd be application for us, that uh, that the Word of God would transform uh, what we do with what we hear. We thank you for this time together, as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In a conversation with his disciples, Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? It's probably the most significant question ever asked, who is Jesus Christ? Where did he come from? Why did he come? And what difference does his coming make for me? In response, the disciples offer four different answers, John the Baptist, uh, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Some thought he was a prophet, others a great political leader. Still others thought he was John the Baptist, come back to life. And if posed with the same questions, what might we hear today concerning who Jesus is? Some say he was a good man. Others, a revolutionary, maybe a misunderstood rabbi, a brilliant teacher. Still, others, a notable religious leader among the likes of Buddha or Gandhi or Muhammad or the Dalai Lama. Who is Jesus? Our text this morning contains a remarkably clear answer to the question Who is Jesus Christ? This short section is a short course in Christology, you know, a study of who Jesus is, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This passage we're looking at this morning in Philippians chapter 2 essentially reveals the entire career of Jesus and answers the question, the greatest question in history, who is Jesus? It begins with Christ in the heavens tells of his voluntary uh, advent to earth and taking on of human flesh and coming to us as a servant. His humiliating death on the cross and concludes with a triumphal return to heaven. That's the whole career. That's Jesus' life in, a, in five short verses. He starts from heaven, he comes to earth as a man, and then he ascends right back up. And we ask this question, especially as we're in this strange season we call Lent in the Christian calendar. It's the 40 days leading up to, not including Sundays, of course, leading to Easter. And during the season, we'll be, we're in this sermon series that we're calling the way of the cross as a way of examining the life of Jesus, what He accomplished in His death and resurrection, and what He calls us, His followers, to do. But in order for us to understand our call, we have to ask this question first, who is Jesus? And then try to figure out, who is this Jesus to us? Well, let's look at the text together, how Paul describes who he was and what he did. It's outlined beautifully for us. In verse 6, Paul begins this section by saying, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul begins by stressing the eternal pre-existence of Jesus as God. In other words, he was before he was. Before Jesus came to earth, the Bible tells us that he existed as God and, with, and was with God in heaven. This is a Paul's version of John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The language in the form of God is nothing less than a declaration of the the deity, the divinity of Jesus. Whatever it is that makes God, God, Jesus possessed the same essence. Whatever you can say about God, you can say about Jesus. He was all that God is and possessed all that God had. He was hundred percent God, and nothing less. All of the qualities, all of the attributes, all of the characteristics, all of the distinctive distinctives of deity belong to Jesus Christ. Again, he was in possession of all the attributes of God. Whatever we know and think of God, His omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, His holiness. His sovereignty, his eternality, his wisdom, his justice, all that you can think of of God can be found in Jesus as well. He was truly equal with God. This is vitally important because, again, as we think about this and as we think about Christ, again, what we think about Christ determines everything else. How we view Jesus determines everything else. So in verse 6, it tells us who he was, that, in, that he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. And then in verse 7, Paul tells us what he becomes. Again, like I said, it's a very simple outline. Again, who he was, and then verse 7 and 8, what he does. In verse 6, it says, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he emptied himself. He considered himself nothing. And again, I apologize. I often use uh, illustrations from Star Wars and the Avengers and, and Marvel, and I, again, I apologize for that. But just imagine your favorite superhero without any of their, any of their powers. You ever watch uh, Spider, uh, not Spider-Man, but Superman when you were growing up? I mean, I, 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 just, I said that wrong. I, I realized that we were in a in a group of very different aged people. And so I, when I was growing up, not all of you guys were growing up. And so some of you guys were already grown up, and some of you guys were just being born. So anyways, I, but when I was little, I watched Superman, you know? And, and uh, again, the 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 presence of Kryptonites, you know, would often... Uh, dispel the, the powers of, of Superman, you know. And again, when we think about an emptying, you know, when we think about a, a, uh, a consider himself nothing, again, the, the King James Version says, uh, regard as nothing. What does that mean? You know, the previous verse clearly showed the divinity of Jesus, and what these verses do is show us also that he was a fully, 100%, human being. He was a man. Theologians call this the incarnation, God coming to earth in human flesh. The writer of the Gospel of John says, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. In every conceivable conceivable way you define humanity, define a person, a real man with flesh and bone, Jesus was. He was both. What the previous verse explains about divinity, again, these verses talk about humanity, the divine nature and the human nature, again, what the early church fathers called the hypostatic union, this, this merge of the, uh, the divine and the, and the human, not a mixture of the two, but two natures, perfect yet distinct, the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, Christ. Fully divine, yet fully human at the same time. And the passage tells us that he became, again, God in human flesh. He was truly equal with God, which makes the next statement all the more remarkable. He did not regard his position as God as something to be grasped. Instead, he kenosis. It's the Greek word that says uh, he emptied himself. He did not regard his position as God, uh, as God as something to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, taking the likeness of men and being found in human form. Jesus empties himself and what theologians call the kenosis, again, in chapter 2, verse 7, again, again, about the Son of God emptying himself. But the question is, what did Jesus empty himself of? Superpowers? The ability to fly faster than a speeding bullet? What did Jesus empty himself of? Ever think about that question? Did he give up his attributes? His divine attributes? Some theologians might say the metaphysical attributes, the ones uh, that we talk about, about about God's uh, omnipotence or his omniscience, or his omnipresence. And those theologians will still divide and say, well, the the moral attributes of, of love and kindness and holiness, those he kept. And the metaphysical ones, he emptied himself of. However, however, if Jesus Christ gave up he emptied himself of omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence. If he gave those up, then couldn't you argue that he also gave up being God? We might, in fact, say, in effect, he was no longer God. Once you strip him of his divine attributes, he's no longer God. But as we know from the scriptures and as we know from John chapter 1, he was God. He was in the beginning with God. He was with God. And the Bible tells us again that he is God. Why give up some and retain others? When we read through the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, did not Jesus heal the sick? Did Jesus not cast out demons? Demons? Did not Jesus calm the storm? Weren't all these a display of his omnipotence? I think so. Jesus had power. Power unlike a, what, what uh, any human possesses. He walked on water. I mean, other than Peter, I mean, he's the only guy. jesus was omnipotent he had power he had power at the finger at at, uh, at at his fingertips he could do whatever he wanted no i don't think jesus gave up his omnipotence but do you think jesus maybe gave up his omniscience the the all-knowing the the ability to know things that sometimes we cannot know. We find stories upon stories, I think, of the omniscience of Jesus. Think about the woman at the well. He knew how many husbands she had, and that the one that she was living, with, living with, with was not her husband. How did he know where to find the donkey before the Passover? And there are just, again, stories like this all throughout the Gospels where, where Jesus knows things. And so, again, I, I struggled with this particular question in college. I was doing my studies, and again, I, I, was, I was led to believe, yes, that Jesus gave up his omnipotence and his omniscience and omnipresence, and, and yet when I read through the Gospel stories, again, it, it's not. Jesus does not give up any of these things of his metaphysical or even his moral attributes, those that define him as As God, equal with God. So, again, what did Jesus give up? What did he empty himself of? I believe the text here this morning gives us clues right from the text. uh, It says he became nothing. In contemporary terms, he, he became a nobody. Our text tells us that he emptied himself. Again, he made himself of no reputation. Again, listen to the message version by Eugene Peterson. He says, he had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave being human Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, the crucifixion. There's something extraordinary happening in the incarnation that though he was in the form of God, he never ever ceased to be God I believe he veiled his glory, except on certain occasions, and you know the story of the transfiguration where he takes three of his disciples up to the mountain to pray, and he unveils his glory there. He appeared in human likeness. He became a man fully and truly without ceasing to be God. The word likeness means that to all outward appearances, he was merely a man, but in reality, he was more than a man. He was God in human flesh. Let me try to explain. When, If Jesus were here, and in some ways he is, but if Jesus was here in human flesh, would you look at him and say, that's God? Maybe, maybe not. The Disciples knew and the people around them knew because of the, the, the works of, of God he was doing, but in in all appearances he looked like a human being. He veiled his his glory. Again the text tells us again of who he was and what he became. And then in verse 8, the latter part of verse 8 tells us what he does. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 8 tells us the depth of Christ's humiliation. We've forgotten what crucifixion was like in the first century. It was a punishment for uh, so barbaric that the Romans reserved it for the worst of criminals. No Roman citizen could be crucified except on direct order from the emperor. And to the Jews, it was the worst possible fate. And again, Deuteronomy chapter 21, if you go to the Old Testament, again, the the writer of the Pentateuch, which we believe is Moses, pronounces a curse upon anyone who is hung on a tree. And again, in the depths of such such gruesome and horrific death is the most rich part of Scripture in the New Testament, which serves as, I think, the centerpiece of the whole New Testament, the centerpiece of the book of Philippians, that Jesus would empty himself, that he would humble himself even to the point of death, the death on a cross. Our Lord would lay aside his position. He would continue to be God, but at the incarnation, the Lord would step down as it were from his exalted position besides the Father in glory, Uh, again, this position of supreme ruler, He took on the position of the most humble servant, became a man. He became as one of his creation. He relinquished his rightful position to become the savior of sinners. He lays aside his possessions. The apostle Paul spoke of this when he wrote, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, and yet for your sake, he became poor. That through his poverty, you might become rich. When you think about Jesus, all of his life was a life of borrowed things. He was born in a borrowed cattle trough. There was no room for him at the inn. You know that he comes into Jerusalem during the Passion Week, the last week of his life, on a borrowed beast of burden. You know, he was buried in a borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, The Lord who created all things laid aside what was rightfully his. He became poor. He laid aside his possessions so that we might become rich. He lays aside his privilege. A servant does not possess privilege. The master eats first, the servant later. The master has one entrance, the servant another. The master has one dwelling place, the servant substantially inferior. The master is free to do as he wishes, but the servant has little freedom. All the privileges which our Lord could have rightfully claimed, he willingly laid aside. Yes, he laid aside position and possession and privilege, but ultimately he chose to come to earth to take the place of subjection. He took upon him the form of a servant and was made, like, made in the likeness of men. And Paul, the writer of this short letter to the Philippian church in the second chapter, calls the church to unity through humility. I will confess right now, when I go through my, uh, my preached sermons in my, um, in my Dropbox, um, i preached this one so many times. If you actually look on our website, you'll see that I preached this particular passage two other times. I don't know if you knew that or not. This sounds like a new sermon, doesn't it? <laughs> it is. Most of it is ninety percent. But I've always taken this section here in Philippians chapter two, and I've always preached. And um, just looking back on my sermons, I've always preached the sermon as, "Guys, we need to be united, right? We need to come together as one and." And the way to do it is through humility, right? I mean, that's the first four verses. It talks about how we need to be united in Christ and how we need to be humble. Uh, we need to uh, practice a life of humility. But I, I'm going to go back on all my sermons. I'm going to retract all of those sermons that I've ever preached. I might even take the ones that are on there now and take them out. Because I'm led to the conclusion that the ultimate reason, the, the crux or the, the centerpiece of of the whole New Testament and of the whole Scriptures is right here, where Jesus lays aside. He empties himself. He takes on the form of a servant, and made made himself in the likeness of men. Yes, humility leads to greater unity, which I have often thought as the lesson for us in this text. But because the principle, uh, because the principle about humility or of unity, uh, again, I'm sorry, without the principle. Of, I'm sorry, with the helps. Whew. Um, unity and humility without Christ is nothing. This can sound like a very good message about how we need to be all together. And if you preached it and you cut it off right there, it would fit in any organization. because humility and unity without Christ is nothing. Jesus gives up his rights. You know, uh, most conflicts in the world arise because we want to assert our rights. We don't have that here at Great Sacramento. Uh, We always think about other people. Just wanted to make sure I said that. But our rights, we assert, we demand our rights. Anybody notice how, uh, how tense politics are nowadays? I think of the understatement of the year. Most of the tensions are centered around whether or not one has a right to something. If we think about what's happening in the world, I think this could be true there. These ideas are ingrained, I think, not just in American culture, but in the world. And again, especially in the U.S., as immovable foundations of our society, American society and Christianity have been woven so closely together that even the church expects to be granted their rights. When we were younger, we were taught this basic truth, and it definitely feels accurate because we feel deeply wronged if our liberty is violated. These rights, we think, are God-given, but nowhere in Scripture does it say that. That we need to defend our rights. In fact, what you see in the scriptures is the exact opposite. Because God gives his son as the ultimate example of giving up one's rights. Again, the one who created the world and is king over all of the universe, in that crucial moment at the cross when all of his rights as God and man were being violated, he requests Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And now verse 5 is key because it serves as the hinge verse between verses 1 through 4 and then verses 6 through 11. Paul writes, your attitude should be that, uh, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. It's the willingness to waive one's rights that comes from seeking the common good without being concerned for personal reputation or gain. Paul's motive in foregoing his rights was to present the gospel in the most attractive way possible, in the hope of winning some, again, that he would see some come to Christ using, this is profound, using our freedom to choose slavery, using our rights to enslave ourselves using our freedoms for the sake of the other person, not for ourselves. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, For though I am free, is what he says, I am free from all men, and yet I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more. Ever think about that? Why would God become a slave? Why would God become come in the form or, or the likeness of, of man? Why would He give up his rights for the sake of the other? The underlying principle here should be noted: all Christian duty flows naturally from God's kindness and his example of. Submission, his act of self-sacrifice, the giving of himself. You see, the underlying principle here is that here Jesus is the ultimate example of one who gave it away, the one who had every right and every freedom, and yet he he gives it away. My friends, it's not about humility and it's not about unity. The, The text here is about Christ. And as I've mentioned many a times before, again, whenever we read through Scripture, and again, it's true, especially when we read the Old Testament, we ask the question, what does it say about the heart of God? What does it say about Christ who is coming? But the New Testament is no different. When we read through texts like this, we ask ourselves, what does it say about the heart of God? And what does it say about Jesus? The heart of God is that he would be for the other that he would lay aside his rights and his privilege and his position and his possessions and his power and ran out of P words. But he would give up all these things for the sake of his creation. Though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. My friends, if this text teaches us anything, is that you cannot pick up your cross and your rights at the same time. We demand our rights because we think it's our self-protection, but Christ calls us to a lifestyle of self-sacrifice, a total abandonment for the gospel, that you be sold out for Jesus, that there would be nothing in moderation in our, in our pursuits of wanting to be just like him. The kenosis principle, the kenosis application is so important that we, we, we see this principle looking at the way Jesus emptied himself and looking at the way that we, we do that with one another. It has application for us in those areas of our lives that we have positions of authority, a higher positions of a position than others. The Kenosis principle instructs us that leadership is not exempt from, being, uh, from having the servant spirit. In fact, it's the ideal place to manifest it. Or you think about uh, equality again, when you think about those who are equal to you, what a place! Those you consider peers and on, on equal footing and, and an equal level, that you would exercise servanthood. Jesus again says this to his disciples. He says, You know that those who are recognized as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great men exercise authority over them, but it is not to be with you. Because whoever wishes to be great among you must become the servant of all it is said that Jesus was equal with God and yet the Lord did not cling to it. The Kenosis principle instructs us that we might that what we might demand as by virtue of our equality may be that which we are to relinquish in order to be obedient servants. We have certain privileges. Yes, Paul teaches us that these liberties may need to be laid aside, not because they are wrong, they are not, but because they fail to achieve what is in the best interest of a brother or a sister in the Lord. My friends, look to Jesus. Look to Christ. Look at the example of Jesus who laid aside his life, He offered his life voluntarily. You might be led to believe that as you come to the gospel, especially the section as he's led to the cross, that he has no power. He doesn't know what's going to happen. You might be led to think that he was just a man. The tension of the text tells us that he was fully God and also fully man. And only a God, only a man like Jesus, who is both divine and human, can accomplish for us what we cannot. Because we're sinners. We failed God, we've fallen many a times, and so only a perfect God A perfect man can be the mediator between a a holy God and sinful humanity, and that's Jesus.